Back in uh, the spring of 2014, a college sophomore named Danny Foley noticed that all of the University of Virginia assistant basketball coaches wore the same outfit during the games. A dark suit and an orange tie. Orange is one of the school colors. And young Mr. Foley had an idea. It wasn't a brilliant idea, but it was an idea. He went down to Walmart. He bought a suit jacket, slacks, dress shoes, white shirt, and an orange tie. Then he bought a $30 ticket in the nosebleed section to get into the Atlantic Coast Conference championship game between the University of Virginia and Duke University on March the 16th of 2014. During a television timeout, he made his move. He said, I walked right behind the cheerleaders and onto the court and joined the UVA huddle on the court. No one seemed to notice because he blended in. When the game ended with UVA winning the ACC title for the first time in 40 years, Danny joined in the celebration. He fell right into the handshake line, got to shake the hand of the legendary Duke basketball coach, Mike Krzyzewski, and all of the other members of the team. He says, then, after that I went, I ran into a UVA manager passing out hats and shirts. So he put those on and he celebrated with the team, even taking a selfie with the trophy before a staffer spotted him and he found his way back into the stands and slipped away. You can see photos of all of that online if you go searching for it. Now, was he really a coach? Of course not. Was he a player? No. Was he a manager? No. Did he have any association with the UVA basketball team at all? None whatsoever. In fact, he wasn't even a student at UVA. He was just a fan who was actually a student at James Madison University. Well, that was all just a college prank perpetrated by a young man who obviously didn't yet have full brain development. <laughs> and the humor of it let him get away with it with, without any serious consequences. But sadly, there are similar pretenders who claim to be followers of Christ when in fact they aren't and often don't even realize it. And the consequences for that, though, aren't nearly as benign as faking one's way onto a basketball court. We've come to the place in our study of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus had been speaking about false prophets now he turns his attention to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. In Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus teaches us that entrance into the kingdom of heaven comes only through a relationship that produces obedience. So I invite your attention with me to Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23 this morning. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And I will read for us 
what Jesus says in these verses. Beginning in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Thank you. Please be seated. Now those are pretty sobering words, aren't they? Those are words that will give even genuine believers pause. In fact, perhaps, perhaps especially genuine believers, those of tender conscience. Those who are true followers of Christ will be inclined to see themselves in these words. But Jesus is addressing here and talking about false followers. Those who profess but don't practice. And verse 21 tells us about empty professions and what it is that makes them so. According to Jesus, there are those who will come, those who will call Him Lord. Now that would be an equivalent in our parlance, in our terminology probably, to what we would call a profession of faith. Publicly professing and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And as John Stott points out, a verbal profession of Christ is indispensable. It's a necessary part of salvation. We know that from what we read in the Scripture in other places. In Romans 10, for example, we know the passage where it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. But what is it that is the mark of a genuine believer? What is it that distinguishes a genuine professor from an empty professor? Well, it's what follows the profession. If a husband tells his wife that he loves her, but then he ignores her, neglects her, mistreats her, abuses her? Where is the evidence of the love that he professes? The Christian profession that Jesus describes in verse 21 appears on the surface to be everything that it ought to be. It's polite, it's respectful, it's orthodox, it's fervent. Lord is repeated for emphasis. And it's apparently public, but unfortunately it's empty. There is no substance to it. There is nothing there to back it up. It's a profession that is talk without truth. It involves lips, but not lives. They call Jesus Lord, but they don't submit to His Lordship. So Luke, in his gospel, records Jesus asking why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There is a disconnect there. Jesus says that an empty profession, words without obedience, 
is insufficient and ineffective. John Stott, I think, sums it up for us rather eloquently. He says, Our final destiny will be settled, Jesus insists, neither by what we are saying to Him today, nor by what we shall say to Him on the last day, but by whether we do what we say, whether our verbal profession is accompanied by moral obedience. Now, unfortunately, there are multitudes of people today who profess Jesus as Lord, but give little, if any, thought to doing what He says, to following His teaching. Turn the other cheek? <laughs> are you crazy? Go the extra mile? Well, not if it infringes on my liberty in any possible way. Love an enemy? You've got to be kidding. They sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but they'll take offense over the most trivial little things. They want their names on the church roll, but you don't see them all that often. And if they do attend, if the church does anything that they don't agree with or they want done, or if you tell them something that they don't want to hear but need to hear, well, then they'll get upset and leave because there's another church right down the street that may be more to their liking. They nurse grudges. They refuse to forgive. They gossip about others. They repeat rumors. They think only of themselves and their rights. And yet they still expect to spend eternity in heaven. But hear carefully the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus is using the third person here. And maybe that creates a little too much distance. Maybe we should rephrase it so that it's easier to see ourselves as we read these words. Maybe we should phrase it, not all of you who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to ask ourselves, am I one of those whose profession is empty? Are you? Do you call him Lord but don't even try to do what he says, what we've been studying for these many weeks in his most important sermon? Not only will those whose professions are empty be surprised on that day, the day of judgment, but so will those whose works are empty. In verse 22, now A.W. Tozer has said, The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. In verse 22, Jesus describes those who claim in His name to have prophesied, and in His name to have cast out demons, and in His name to have done miracles. Now, The, the New International Version text that I read earlier doesn't really do it justice, because in the Greek text, they, they refer to the name of Jesus all three times, and they do it first for emphasis. They want, want it known that they, they've done these things in Jesus' name. 
And no doubt they had done some of these things because, not just because of the power of the name of Jesus, but also because Jesus later in Matthew says that false Christs and false prophets will perform great signs and miracles. But something is wrong with these works. What is it that is wrong here in this text? Andrew Murray said, Do not confuse work and fruit. There may be a good deal of work for Christ that is not the fruit of the heavenly vine. Those trying to do things to appropriate the name of Christ even without anything behind it. You know, when I read this, I can't help but think of the rather humorous account in Acts 19 uh, where Luke tells us about the sons of Sceva. Let me read it for you real quickly. <clears throat> it says, Some Jews who went around about driving evil spirits out tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches... I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding trying to appropriate the name of Jesus without any connection to Jesus. What's wrong with these works? Well, Jesus points it out in our text. The singular failure of those who cannot enter the kingdom and what ultimately lies behind their disobedience is the lack of a relationship with the Lord the lack of a relationship. That's what's missing. Jesus speaks to them plainly, it says. Literally, He says, I will confess to them, I never knew you. Now, when knowledge is spoken of in the Scripture that way, it, it always refers to interactive relationship. In other words, there's no relationship there. Jesus does not know them in that way. They never had a relationship with Him. Now as an illustration, I could tell all of you here today that uh, the famous golfer Tiger Woods is my best friend. He and I, we are tight. We talk on the phone every day. We hang out together all the time. I could invoke His name when I play golf on the golf course with my buddies and friends and try to make them all jealous. In fact, I could invoke his name anywhere, I suppose. But if I were to show up at the front door of his house, which is in Florida, I think, and knock and, and say, let me in, he would undoubtedly say, I don't know you. Get away from here. And yet, those who have a relationship with him, those he knows, his family, his friends, his golf buddies, I'm sure they get right in. Now, that's certainly not a perfect illustration of this, but I think you get the idea. A lot of people 
call the name of Jesus. They want the benefits of calling the name of Jesus without the effort of maintaining a relationship with Jesus, without the obedience that a real relationship with God in Christ requires and produces. They miss the relationship. And woe to those who arrive at that day without a relationship with Christ. The judgment that they receive is exclusion from the kingdom of heaven forever. Jesus in the scripture, perhaps more than any other, speaks explicitly of the torments of hell. He describes it as outer darkness, where the fire is never quenched, where the worms never die, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there is no aspect of hell worse than eternal exclusion from the presence of God. In fact, I would go so far as to submit to you that that is the very definition of hell. The poet and minister John Donne wrote this. What a gnashing, what gnashing is not a comfort. What gnawing of the worm is not a tickling. What torment is not a marriage bed to this damnation to be secluded eternally, eternally, eternally from the sight of God. How right he is. And yet that is the fate of those with empty professions and empty works. But Jesus says those who do enter the kingdom are those who do the will of the Father in verse 21. Now, what is the will of the Father? Well, in a sermon on this text, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that the Father's will is that we begin with faith and trust in Jesus, the one sent by the Father to save us. That that's the very beginning of doing the Father's will. And Spurgeon asks, Hast thou believed in Jesus? If not, thy sacraments, thy church goings, thy chapel goings, thy prayers and hymns all go for nothing. If you do not trust in Jesus, you have not even the foundation stone of salvation. You are lost, and may God have mercy upon you. Do you have a relationship with Jesus that comes from a true and genuine belief that He is who He says He is, and a trust that you can do what He tells you to do, and be better for it. Does that characterize your life, your experience? Or is yours an empty profession? In other words, have you just bought the suit and tie without really joining the team? Are you a new person for Christ, or are you just the same person with a new tie? To have a relationship with Jesus, it isn't enough just to be an admirer of Jesus. 
You also have to be a follower of Jesus. That reality has been illustrated many times by preachers over the years with a story from the life of a man named Jean-Francois Gravelet. He was a French funambulist, better known by his professional name, which we would pronounce Charles Blondin, a name he took because he had blonde hair. Now, a funambulist, that's just a fancy name for a tightrope performer. He was a tightrope walker. In fact, he uh, was the premier tightrope walker of his day, many would say of any day. So much so that his name became synonymous with tightrope performance. He gained his fame in the summer of 1859 by going to Niagara Falls, he stretched a rope 1,100 feet across the falls, 160 feet above the water, and told everyone far and wide that he was going to walk across that rope. And thousands upon thousands came to see it, to see if he might fall, which would have been certain death. But sure enough, Blondin walked across that tightrope and all of the admirers who had come, they cheered this accomplishment that he had done. But he wasn't through. He did it again and again. On other occasions that summer, constantly ratcheting up the theatrics of it. He walked across blindfolded. He walked across with a sack over his body. He walked across on stilts. He pushed a wheelbarrow across, rode a bicycle across. In fact, on one occasion even took a small stove out there to the middle and made himself an omelet <laughs> on the tightrope. And as one version of the story goes, Blondin turned to the admiring crowd and asked if they believed he could carry someone on his back across. They said, yes, of course they believed it. Then he said, uh, who will climb on so we can go? And it got strangely quiet. Are you a true believer or are you just an admirer? The crowd of thousands remained silent, except for one man, a man named Harry Colcord, who had been Blondin's manager. He knew him well. He had seen him perform countless times. He knew his abilities. He knew everything about him, and he trusted him enough to climb on Blondin's back. And 1,100 feet later, they were across. There's pictures of it. You can find it. And everybody applauded Charles Blondin, but only one man trusted him enough to be carried across. All of them were admirers. Only one was a follower. So which one are you when it comes to Jesus? An admirer, happy to use his name to get out of it whatever you may, or are you a follower, one who trusts Jesus enough to let him carry you wherever he will and believe that it is in the will of God, whatever may befall you. If you're just an admirer, if you find that you're not what you should be, 
in your discipleship and your following of Jesus, then today you can become a committed, devoted disciple, a follower who trusts in Jesus. You do that by faith in Jesus, that He is who He claims to be, and trusting Him with your life, making Him genuinely the Lord of your life, and doing what He has told us to do. Scripture tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. But it also says we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That fruit that demonstrates that we have a genuine, true relationship with Jesus by faith. If you will put your faith, your trust in Him, then instead of hearing, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoer, you can instead hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Would you pray with me? God, these words are stark. Jesus is talking straight with us. He's not sugarcoating it, is He? He's telling us that our profession must be accompanied by obedience to Your will for our lives. He tells us that our works must be the fruit of a relationship with Him rather than just a an appropriation of His name for our own purposes, our own fame, our own good feelings. And God, I pray that You would move among us today, that You would speak into our hearts. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, if we need to see ourselves in this text, then open our eyes to see and strengthen our faith, our trust, our commitment. And if someone is here today who has not even begun to do your will by placing faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray, God, that you would lead that one to that decision today. All for your glory and praise, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation, a well-known hymn, that talks about making Jesus Lord giving Him everything of our lives. And as we do, if you have a decision to make, if you need to confess faith in Jesus Christ genuinely and truly, if you need to be baptized in obedience to His command, if you need a church home and like what you find here, I'll be waiting down front to receive you. You be careful to do what you hear the Lord telling you to do.